Alright guys, hi! Welcome to episode 6 of CNB Scene Podcast. Season 2! Season 2! Yes. I'm joined by Rebecca. Hi. JDF. What's up? And Joanna. Woo! What's up? Alright, today guys we have a really special guest with us. We have Jesse Hu. Yeah. Jesse Yeah, Jesse's a knife maker and a really awesome member of our community. And um, we're just so blessed that he's joining us today for this episode. So before, you know, before we get started into going to your process and everything like that, uh, can you first tell us about yourself? All right. So, yeah, my name is Jesse. Um, I'm currently a freshman at the University of Michigan studying remote. I plan to double major in electrical and mechanical engineering. Um, in terms of knife making, I dabbled about with it like here and there when I was in eighth grade, just like grabbing some bricks from my backyard, a hairdryer, a tube and some charcoal. Um, Whoa. Yeah, just like heating up steel, learning how like the temperatures spread across the metal. Um, on and off from there, like sometimes I avoid doing Chinese school homework. Ooh, classic, <laughs> classic. <laughs> classic avoidance. Yeah. Um, other than that, I really started doing it seriously about a year ago. Like it was about that time where I realized, hey, maybe, uh, maybe I can make something and someone will want to pay for it. That was like a really big leap forward. Like I've always seen it as a hobby, but now if someone asked me, did you have a job over um, quarantine? I'm like, yeah, I made uh, knives for people. Nice, nice. And so you mentioned like you had dabbled in it before to like, you know, get out of doing uh, Chinese school homework. <laughs> so what, what got you like kind of really into start dabbling into it? Like, was there like someone who introduced it to you or did you just like, you just kind of came across and were like, yo, this is dope. I want to do this. So I've actually heard this question a lot. Like a lot of people think it's just uh there's this one big moment or this person came and put that to my life. Uh, it was really just being an um, eighth grader that had nothing else better to do <laughs> and just like coming across videos of it on YouTube. And I'm like, this is really cool. Like, and it doesn't even look that hard to start. So, yeah. Was it hard to get into something that was at, you know, I think it could be counted as pretty niche. Like, you know, not many people were like getting into it or it wasn't like a trend or anything, but was it hard to get into something that was like pretty um, unique? Um, in my experience, not really. It's really just like time and money and just getting started. It's not expensive at all. Like, I think I spent less than $100 to get started. And to get started on a new hobby, that's really not too much, yeah. I think. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. I mean, compared to like photography and stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. What did your parents think about it when you first started it? So... At the beginning, it was really what any Asian parent would say, like, you're wasting your time. Uh, you should uh, probably focus on that Chinese school homework. And uh, everything really starts there. Um, after doing it for a while, they started to be like, they, they went from stop wasting your time mentality to, wow, my child can do this. <laughs> and uh, it really just evolved from there. Like, now, whenever I finish the knife, they're like, let me take a picture. Let me, let me oh, see. Oh, that's <laughs> cute. Nice. How do you uh, sort of go around balancing the responsibilities between like knife making and like school and like other stuff you have going on in your life? Is there like a, do you have a sort of like kind of organizational process for yourself? Uh, kind of like it's really just that voice in the back of my head. Like if I don't do like any of them for a while, it just tells me you need to go do this. Like a few weeks ago or like the past month in general, I haven't like I've been on like a semi-hiatus from knife making. There's like not as much motivation as there usually was, but like during that time, that voice in my head was just 
kept on telling me like you got to get in the shop and like use your creative outlet and apart from that last month like it's really been just like an hour or two a day at most um there was this one point where i had three people contact me within the same day asking for knives and that was just it went from one to two hours to like five to six hours and that was when i started to realize if you keep spending too many hours on this you're gonna get burnt out and Mm -hmm. yeah basically the voice in my head and not doing too much at Mm -hmm. one time that takes a lot of discipline yeah it's very self-aware too was this something that you learned along the way in your process like that that sort of that voice in your head and everything like that or was this sort of like what did you have like a frame of reference in mind um so on youtube there's a lot of other knife makers that, that i used to watch like alex Steele, um joey vandersteeg uh no one probably knows him but um we're just name dropping yeah um and a lot of instagram like knife makers they always talk about burnout and mm-hmm. just time management in general like I mean, there's crazy people out there. Like, there's this guy that works 70 to 80 hour weeks just making knives, grinding away. Um, Like, not many people can do that and not get burnt out. So I think just seeing all these people do what they did and how they did it, that sort of created that voice in my head. Awesome. In terms of uh, creative outlets, so talking about that, we talk a lot about, like, personal styles Mm -hmm. here on the show. And we, uh, we always interview people in, like, we always ask them, like, how would you describe, like, your personal style? So when we ask, like, photographers, we're like, like, what are kind of the techniques that you use um, to sort of enhance your own personal style? If we talk to dancers, you know, like, what are some things that makes, you know, you, you, and, like, makes it, makes your movement unique to yourself? So considering you're, like, our first craftsman in our, on our show, yeah. how would you describe your personal style? So... I think one defining characteristic for all the blades that I make is the that wavy line that you see along them. If you watch anime, you like you'll know about the katana and mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like the in my opinion the coolest part, like it gives the blade its soul. And after just like learning how to do homon, like there was a lot of trial and error involved in that. Um I just thought why not put this on like simpler knives? Like cuz katanas are crazy complicated and take months to make. And for just blade shape in general, I like to make American style chef's knives, which is sort of a triangle shape with mm-hmm. a bit of a rounded belly. Like mm-hmm. it can be, it's not a rocking cut. It's, um, it's more of a push cut, parallel cut. Basically combining that Japanese hamon style plus the American blade style. Um, that's the majority of the chef's knives that I make. Everything else that I make that's a one-off is um, just hamon plus whatever looks cool, I guess. Nice. What made you choose, uh, like, combining, like, the Japanese Harmon style with, like, the American um, style? Um, I think it's just aesthetics and function. That's really the most basic way I can put it. Like, if I see someone make an American style chef's knife, I'm like, this is the style that looks the coolest. It looks mm-hmm. the meanest. It, uh, <laughs> if someone sees it in your drawer, they're going to be like, whoa, this looks cool. And putting the Harmon on them... It was sort of a no-brainer because it just adds that level of coolness. Like, there's smoke coming like from the soft part of the steel, blending into the hard part. Um, and there's also a functionality aspect to that hamon because, for katanas at least, the edge is really hard, and that allows you to have a really sharp edge, really keen edge. But 
in order to balance that with some durability, they make the spine softer. And so you can take a katana and bend it past 90 degrees and just bend it right back and, oh. it, and it won't break. And oh wow, I'm pretty sure if you did that with any of my chef's knives, like past 90, it wouldn't break. And I think that adds to the functionality, yeah. I think. I'm gonna do that when I get home. <laughs> Let's try that. Oh, no. <laughs> it's like those sword you saw in the movies that makes like woo 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 woo. It kind of gives you that vibe. Yeah. Yeah. If you can imagine just Joanna's hand going, waving in a waving the, motion. The waving. Yeah. <laughs> Dang, I never knew it was that flexible. Yeah. Is there, for the Hamon style um, designs, do you like look up uh, inspiration or do you kind of just like, I think this looks cool? Yeah, definitely. Um, so if you look at my search history from time to time, you'll see like <laughs> different Japanese Hamon styles. And I watch a decent amount of anime. Like I watch One Piece and there's a lot of katana in there because that's what the vice captain uses. Um, yeah. So I guess you could say that's part of the inspiration, just like looking at past works. But a lot of Hamon making is actually just like it tests the maker's creativity and you can really make whatever style hamon you want. Like one time I made it look like trees growing up mm, to make it look like that. fire. And some guy on Instagram made a hamon that looked like Mount Fuji during the sunset. Like it's beautiful. That's amazing. Yeah. As a brief aside, what are your three favorite animes? <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh yeah, we gotta, we gotta go into that. <laughs> it's important. I'll say the top three in no particular order. Uh, one Piece, definitely. Masterpiece. Mm. Uh, second one, probably Attack on Titan because the world building is on par with One Piece. And the third one, uh, I just watched it recently. Uh, I think the first four episodes of it were so beautiful, like actually 11 out of 10. Nice. Uh, Rising of the Shield Hero. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It was actually the only anime that I've actually balled at. Like, oh, I, I balled at many anime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just couldn't stop crying after the fourth episode and it's the anime that i've connected most deeply with emotionally that's what, that's anime for you you connect with it emotionally yeah, yeah. i should go home and rewatch rising the shield hero season two is coming out soon oh yes yeah, yeah, yeah. the really anime that makes it. me cry is haikyuu all the oh, time yeah. oh, guaranteed oh i happy cry every episode excluding <laughs> the last season that was that was unfortunate <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's really cool how you like take your interest in one area and then like apply some of the ideas from it into like a different area of interest mm -hmm. so there's a lot of like cross inspiration going on fusion yeah. <laughs> we've been talking a lot about your style and everything and um, i think it'll be helpful for our uh, listeners but like before we go on we kind of just start uh kind of an understanding of what the knife making process is like if there's any like unique terms in there, uh, just let us know what they mean and like oh, yeah. uh, educate us. Yeah, educate us because yes. you know we know nothing. I only use it when I cook. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So yeah, can you just walk us through a detail step by step of the knife making process for you? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I could go really deep into this, and um, <laughs> so the first step of making any knife is to have a vision, and to have that vision, you can either have thought about it for like a long time or you can make a sketch of it or you can uh make like a paper cutout whatever like helps get that cemented into your brain um have a vision is first step second step gather your materials of course if you don't have the right kind of stock at the beginning it it'll take you forever to forge it out or you won't be able to get the thickness that you need to quench it without cracking and i personally don't have a power hammer or press so i can't work with like 
two-inch round stock by hand, uh, that would take forever and just wouldn't be efficient. So having your materials and stock ready, unless like you don't know what material you're gonna be using for like the handle, um, you can buy that later on and just see what the steel tells you and like what the blade shape tells you. Um, third step, first major step, I like to forge my blades, um, but there's people out there that just grind their blades. It's called stock removal. They basically get a piece of steel, glue like a paper template on and just grind it to shape. Um, I personally don't like doing it that way because I feel like the forging gives the blade part of its soul, just like the hamon process. Um, I, I forge on my blades. Uh, forging process, this was actually a step that took me the longest to figure out and get right because there's actually a lot that goes into like the order of the way you do things. Um, so there's this step in the forging process called beveling. It's where you turn the steel from a rectangular cross-section to more of a a triangle, maybe with the rectangle added to the top of the triangle. Um, if you forge the bevel without a preform, you're gonna not get a straight blade. If you do it with like a long piece of steel, you end up with a katana shape because it, the steel likes to curve away from the tip. And just learning the correct amount of preform to like put on the blades and like knowing what the final blade shape is, you need to like get that preform dialed in. And and a preform is a sort of is it sort of like a like a template that it's, you're using it's sort of you forge the shape the steel into a shape to get ready for another shape it's like forging a triangle and bending the tip down to prepare for the curve that'll go up gotcha yeah um there's a there's a lot more to the forging process but basically it's just get the steel to a rough shape and there's profiling that you can do later with the grinder um this is the step that I think is really important that a lot of people don't take into account as much. It's profiling, like I mentioned before. Um, in my opinion, if you get a blade that like looks all shiny, has beautiful Damascus, but has a bad profile, it's just not a good blade. Like, If you look at it in the sun and you just see a shadow, you should be able to tell that it's a loved blade, that pe they put thought into it beforehand. Mm -hmm. Like. Because when you're forging a blade, you can't get perfect like 90 degree edges. You can't get, you you, you can try, but it's not going to be like easy <laughs> in the slightest. Um, profiling basically gets the blade to like its final profile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, after profiling is rough grinding. Um, usually right after forging, the blade is really thick unless you allocate the correct amount of material beforehand, which is also a really hard thing because... A lot of bladesmiths like to keep their blades thick, even though it's not the best for cutting, which is what knives are actually used for. Um, and so rough grinding helps bring some of that bulk down, uh, but you can't do it too much or else you'll end up with a blade that's too thin. And that leads to the next step. It's called the quench. So blade steel right after forging is really, really soft. Like if you take a file to it, if you uh, grind it on the concrete, if you basically do whatever to it, it's not as strong as you'd like it to be. Like, if you sharpened it right after forging, you'd be able to cut something once, but not again because the edge is going to be deformed. So what the quench does is it hardens the steel. It's really the defining moment where it, it turns from a piece of steel into a, a knife. That involves just heating it up to the correct temperature and then quenching it in water or oil. I like to use oil because water is a really aggressive quench and you have to have like a a perfect softening process beforehand to avoid cracks um i didn't know how to do a correct softening process until like 
about a year ago when I started to get serious and I cracked many blades in water. Mm. Um, and so I moved to oil. It's a, you can't just use any oil. Like you can't use canola oil and get the best results. You have to get a special engineered oil. It's called Parks 50. It quenches and cools down the steel at the same speed as water, but it's way less aggressive because it doesn't evaporate and create steam and just like maul the steel. Um, so yeah, that's the quench. You heat it up and put it in that medium. During the quench, because I like to do hormones, the way you get the hormone is you put clay on the spine and on the blade in the pattern that you want the intended hormones to be. You can either put no clay on it and just get the entire thing hard, but then at the end you won't get a hormone. So, but there's also a dimension of randomness because you never know how perfectly you got your temperature across the blade before the quench, or like what state the metal is in before it gets heated up, because that also matters. Basically, you clay it in the pattern and quench and cross your fingers. Um, <laughs> and so there's really this small period of time between the quench and like the final grinding where you, if you hold it at a certain angle to the light, you'll be able to see if you got a hormone. And that step's always fun for me because I like to see if I failed or not. And <laughs> before I figured out that I was always overheating my blades, like I'd I always try to find the perfect angle, but there'd be nothing there because I overheated it and... Overheating doesn't really mix up well with hormones. Um, mm. After the quench, there's this little period of time where you can straighten the blade because sometimes in the quench, a blade can banana or Pringle or whatever shape oh. you want to use. That sounds yummy. There's this little period of time where you can correct the straightness of the blade. And you see people do it on YouTube, but I honestly don't have the courage to do that because that's a really good way to break your blade in this... In, like. It's really hard after a quench, and that's what leads to the next step. It's called tempering. The tempering brings down the hardness just a little bit, but not too much, so that it gets a little bit of the springiness that you need a blade to have, so that it's still hardened and not soft like before. Um, it involves just putting the blade in the oven at the set temperature, and all steels have different like tempering charts. Like if you temper a certain blade steel at 400 degrees, it might reach a hardness of like hrc 60 and if you do it to another it might stay hard at like 64 it all depends on the composition of the metal for the general chef knife i like to temper two hours twice at 395 degrees i like having that little bit of extra hardness just to know that on the line down the line like the customer will have their blade be sharp for a longer amount of time and assuming that they don't drop it too many times <laughs> that it doesn't crack or anything so after the tempering it's just more grinding, getting it down to the final dimensions. And this part has changed a lot for me. Like my first knives, I left them very, very thick, like quarter inch thick at the spine. Like you're not gonna be able to cut anything with that. Even if you try, I mean, you, you can try. But <laughs> And so chef's knives for me have been just getting that threshold of how thin do I want it before I feel scared that it's gonna be like too fragile and that line has gotten thinner and thinner and there's still probably a long way for me to go because I see a lot of professional bladesmiths um, getting them so thin that you can deflect the edge with your fingernail and but those blades are still the best of the best like very durable very springy very good profile for cutting like vegetables um, and so after the final grinding getting it to its final um, dimensions there's this thing called hand sanding it's to ensure a very even finish on the blade because if you just got a, a belt finish on it and you tried to bring out that hormone, those scratches would be deep enough so that you wouldn't be able to fully polish it 
and not be able to see it to its full potential. Like I bring out the hormones in my blades with ferric chloride, but the Japanese smiths and more traditional knife makers don't use ferric chloride. They use, they just stone polish it all. And bringing that hormone out with the stones is way harder. So I stick with the ferric. Like it'd probably take months to do one blade with the stones. So after I hand sand, of course, the etching in the ferric and then after the etching, there's like this cycle of polishing and etching again just to get the final finish. And at this point, the blade itself looks good, but I haven't really talked much about the tang or the, the metal that's going to be part of the handle. And so that part is, it's like a, you could probably spend just as much time on the handle as you did the blade, which is a scary thought because it really ends up just being a piece of wood or a piece of epoxy. And so I like to make all my blades with scales. It's basically two pieces of wood glued to the outside with pins to have also a mechanical protection. And really the step is just finding the piece of wood that you think would look good and getting the scales flat, uh, drilling the holes in the exact spot that you need them. And this is one of the steps where your attention to detail is the most important because like a lot of people, like me included, will see a knife and look at the handle first because it's the easiest place to see if the the maker put actual time into it. Like you, you have to hand sand the wood too to get the good finish. You have to see the fit up between the wood and the metal because if there's a gap there, it just doesn't look good. The shape in general, like it can be too blocky and it won't be comfortable. It can be too thin and it'll slip out of your hands. There's a lot of things that go into it. And basically from there, it's just finishing touches, sharpening and taking pictures and that's also a really lengthy section of Taking time. pictures? Taking yeah. pictures. <laughs> yeah. I think that's basically it. There's a lot of stuff that I left out just for sake of time. But, yeah. Wow. Wow. Wow, that is so detailed. Yeah, I think it's really cool. Like, there's so much creativity behind the whole process. I think during your design process and everything like that, I can relate to, you know, like when you say like, oh, make a vision, you know, I think of storyboarding or mood boards um, for us photographers or any kind of visual creative. It's just like to plan things out. And I think I can relate totally to that. And then I, I can see like all the passion um, through your words when it comes to like using the materials um, and all that. And there's like a lot of room for creativity in terms of like design and just showcasing like this is me kind yeah. of thing. So like what's your like favorite materials to use to like make your knives? All right, so fun fact about hormones, they don't work on every blade steel. So blade steels will have like a certain set of minerals in them and they, if you differ them by a little amount, it'll become an entirely different blade steel. Um, the steel I like to use the most is called W2 tool steel. It's the, I think it's the one with the highest level of vanadium or something. It allows it, like the steel, to get the detail of the hardness. Like some steels are, I think, shallow hardening or deep hardening, one of, one of those. Uh, like I don't really know the, mechan the detailed mechanics, but all I know is that W2 gets a hormone the best with the most detail, and that's the steel I like to use the most. In terms of handle material, the one that looks the coolest in my opinion is just a really good desert ironwood, and Arizona is actually known for ironwood, so. Oh, nice. yeah. Because you know, we're in the desert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's my favorite in terms of looks, but the bad thing about it is it smells absolutely terrible. Oh. Like when you grind it, it'll smell like, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. Like you can almost smell skunk. Mm. Like it's very putrid. If you, 
I walk into the house a lot with uh, dust on my shirt because I don't really like wearing PPE. <laughs> I, mean, like, I, I still wear it, of course, but sometimes I get like ironwood dust on me and uh, it smells terrible for a couple of days. Um, oh. oh, no. Yeah, but it looks absolutely beautiful. Like, Worth it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I'm curious about is like you clearly put a lot into the process of making each night. Mm-hmm. And... I guess maybe because it's because we haven't had too many like craftsmen on our show, but like the thought of like you put so many hours into a knife and then like give it to somebody else, you're like, yeah. oh, my, my baby, <laughs> it's gone. And also I was trying to find it, but I couldn't find it. I have like a vague memory of maybe you selling a knife to a customer and like they didn't, they weren't fully like aware of how to better take care of their knife. <laughs> and yeah, so I'm just curious like how you feel about like when you have to let something go, <laughs> like, I don't know, all of the like emotions that come with like letting go of what you actually made. Yeah, so I've actually thought, thought about this for a while. Um, at the beginning, I was just making knives to make them because they look cool. But then I realized if something doesn't have a purpose, it's not happy. One of the, Dang. yeah, like, one of the happiest things I am to receive is a customer telling me like, oh, they used it for this, or this is like the best knife I've had out of all the knives that I've bought. Like mm-hmm. just knowing that it's being used and being used harshly, like it just makes me happy. Like mm. I made something and its purpose is being fulfilled. About the customer not taking care of it correctly, um, that kind of, <laughs> it kind of hurts when you hear that, but it's really just all part of the learning process. Like after that happened, I started sending papers with how to take care of every knife. Mm. And hopefully it doesn't happen ever again because, uh, I mean, they kind of boiled it. <laughs> and, oh. and then they messaged me and was like, yo, why did it turn black? And I'm like, you boiled the carbon steel knife. And yeah. Oh, no. Oh. I remember I asked you about that. I was like, yeah. do people boil their knives? Why? 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 <laughs> like, and, 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 you, and you told me, told me the reason why, but, but if you could explain why it's bad to boil your knife. Uh, so there's two kinds of steel, carbon and stainless. Uh, they technically both can rust, but one rusts way harder, way easier. Um, W2 is a carbon steel, meaning if you put it in water or get moisture on it and leave it unattended to, it'll start... I don't want to say rust, but it'll change color. And if you like leave it in the sink, then it'll rust. Like I think Aaron knows because he has one of my knives. After cutting like citrus or like acidity, um, it'll start getting a patina. And mm-hmm. that patina ranges like from every color in the rainbow, I think. Um, oh, wow. And like that also adds to like the beauty of the knife. Like it shows the age and how much it's been used. But you have, so, you have to take care of that patina. Like you have to sort of let it grow in the correct way. And if you, if you get it wet and don't clean it and wipe it within a day, it'll get a thicker layer of patina, and that's when like the rust sets in. Mm. And the hotter water is, the faster that happens. And if you oh, boil yeah. it, that's like the hottest water can be. Oh, and gosh. yeah, pretty self-explanatory. It uh, mm. it turned black. And if that happens, you can't use it anymore. You definitely can, but it'll need some cleanup because rust isn't really the best thing to eat. That's um, true. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> like, if they sent it back to me, like, I could probably clean it up decently fast, but just seeing the knife in that state would, wouldn't be that great. <laughs> For the whole knife-making process, like, from start to finish, how long is that, like, for you? Like, how many hours and, I guess, like, how your week looks like? with the knife making process 
so each knife for me, uh, from small to large, like regular chef knife probably takes me around 20 plus hours to make. And I made a big knife called Big Kev a while ago, and that one probably <laughs> took me like 30 to 40 hours. And small one-off knives, maybe 10 hours. Like I've done these one-day builds in the past where I've had a friend come over and just film the entire process. And I've made knives from scratch within a day's time. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of time. And you can really, if you want to spend a lot of time, or if I want to spend a lot of time on a knife, I definitely can because the hand sanding process it can't get worse by spending more time on it. it. It can only get better. And the more time you spend looking at it, finding the smallest scratches, the better the finish will be. And yeah, just bringing up that threshold to when I stop saying like, this is good enough, that threshold's gotten way higher as I've been making knives more. So yeah, basically all in all, many hours. <laughs> and so you have a part-time job. It's a, it's a lot of time. It's fun. And I get to use that time to create something rather than just watching anime or YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you mentioned uh, forging as one of like the things that you had to learn during the, pro the process. Like, uh, it was like beveling was like one of the things part of the forging process. Mm -hmm. and it was like one of the things you had to learn. Which skills sort of came easier to you and which did you have the most uh, trouble learning you know, during this whole process? So for me, I think this also goes for a lot of people. The thing that was easiest to learn was just to hit harder, hit harder and more accurate. <laughs> Do better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just getting the muscle memory, like the only input for that is time, I think. Um, you can really make anything hit any piece of steel and you'll still improve your hammer technique, just like how efficient you can use your energy. Because a lot of people, when they first start, actually try too hard when they hammer things and balancing the level of effort to how much you can do with that effort was just one of the things that came as with came with time um you asked for one of the harder things yeah well one of the most we had the most trouble like sort of getting it down two things uh these are about the same difficulty first one is material allocation a lot of times in the beginning like i would look at the piece of bar stock and say there's no way i can get a knife this thick out of it and i'd ended up like allocating too much and then at the end I'm like why is this twice as long as I'd intended to be just learning how the thickness and like because seeing things in three dimensions and estimating how much there is there is actually so much harder than just looking at a length and just learning how to do that more efficiently was really hard um, I still allocate too much material sometimes and I have to grind that away so the other thing would probably be Preform, like I said um, before, like preform is really important. This comes with just forging more intentional things. Like if I want to create a bottle opener or a leaf, knowing the steps that I need to progress through to get to that final shape was hard. Um, it took a lot of YouTube, like watching someone make something on YouTube. Like if you want to learn how to do it the exact same way, I'd say you have to watch the video at least 10 times because you notice the smallest details, like the angle of their hammer, the temperature of the steel, where on the anvil they're hitting it because not all places on the anvil are actually the same. Just seeing all those small details and putting them into my own craft and creating those steps for myself for things that I've, I haven't seen anybody else make. Um, yeah, just building up that knowledge database. Yeah. 
Nice. So you mentioned like the harmon is like one of the uh, creative elements that um, you incorporate and it kind of makes up your personal style with it. Or um, Are there any other uh, elements, creative elements that you input into the knife making process that kind of you would, you kind of put in, you say like, oh, that's, I, I put that in because it, it, it will look really nice. Or, you know, I like adding in this process because, um, you know, I just, that's just who I am. That's actually a pretty hard one because... It's sort of hard to be unique in the knife making world because there's just so many knives. Um, but one of the details that comes to mind other than the hamon is uh, a false edge. Like I've made fighter blades in the past and tried to put false edges on and they ended up just looking bad. So I was like, these look cool if you do them right. So why not just get better at it? And nowadays, like if I make a fighter blade, it'll have a false edge on it and it'll actually be crisp rather than like blended in with the bevel of the blade. And I like to think that it's one of the better things that I can do on knives. Like it's partially unique. Like not many people like to attempt them and I guess they look cool. And I guess in your terms, what distinguishes a pro from a novice knife maker in your own, like, I know snobby kind of (laughs) little judgmental kind of way. Um, Like, I, I like to say this first, I'm, I'm not a pro in any way. Like, I'm uh, still learning a lot. Um, but from what I've seen, uh, <laughs> it's really just that threshold of this is good enough. Because, like, I'm at the level where I can, like, sort of look at someone's knife and see if it's good or not. And one of the things that speaks out the most is the finish. A lot of people try to hand sand their blades, but they don't get out the deepest scratches because they think it takes up too much time. And then you look at the pros and the finish is pristine everywhere. Even in the smallest crevices, like even if you took it apart, it, the finish would be better than like the beginner finish. And there's this knife maker called Kyle Royer. Um, best of the best, in, in my opinion. Second youngest to receive his Master Smith title. He spent six months making one sword. And he probably spent two weeks on the fittings themselves just like polishing and making them look good like not making the fittings like polishing them getting them a finish that looks good and a novice wouldn't be able to do that like they'd spend five minutes on it and say oh this is good enough like no one's going to notice people do notice and saying to yourself that i don't notice this so someone else won't notice it like that's also part of it like and that also sort of points to another thing uh being able to look at your own work and critique it, like looking at how to improve off of each one because a master smith will create a knife that you'll say looks perfect, but they'll still be able to find things that they could improve on. And I think that's also one of the really important things. So what is the master smith title and how do you get it? <laughs> okay, rabbit hole time. So <laughs> there is only one major bladesmith society in like existence and actually running. It's called the ABS. Like in the world? Uh, or in America? I think in America. Okay. But there, there may be like smaller niche uh, ones in Asia. Hmm. But this is like the most well-known one in, uh, in America. Uh, yeah, ABS, there's three tiers. The first one is called ABS Apprentice. Basically, you only need a membership to have the title, but the title still sounds cool. The skill level of the Apprentice Smiths varies very, very greatly. I'm an apprentice. There's this guy called... Freehold Blades. He's also an apprentice, but his stuff is leagues leagues better. Um, 
And then there's the people that have never made a blade and still have the title because they just signed up. Um, <laughs> yeah, the skill varies very greatly. Um, and then the next one, it's called a journeyman. I think journeyman applies, like the word itself doesn't have to be used just for bladesmithing. Um, I don't really know what it means, but I know it has to do with like other crafts. Like the journeyman title, ABS journeysmith, um, to get the title, you have to have held the apprentice title for three years. And after those three years, you can test yourself for the journeysmith. You basically create a, a tester beater knife. It has to be able to withstand certain uh, tests, such as cutting through a rope, uh, cutting through two by fours, and then still shaving afterward. Oh my gosh. Uh, bending 90 degrees and back. Uh, oh basically. Maybe the Olympics for knives. Yeah, basically. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, you need to be able to create one knife that passes those tests within a certain like dimension threshold and then after you have to make five five journeyman knives and those knives have to be at the top level of fit and finish and you're going to be judged on a panel of i think five mastersmiths and wow. that's like already basically the peak like once you're there you can turn that into a full-time job and just spend all your time on that and still make probably around six figures if you're good enough and then after that is Mastersmith. Mastersmith is, I, I don't know too much of the specifics. Like it's similar to the journeyman test, but it's harder. <laughs> You'd also judge by Mastersmiths. And I think the threshold of fit and finish also is a little higher, but yeah, it's the peak title you can have. Like, I think there's less than a hundred of them in, in existence right now. Um, yeah, once you're there, you're best of the best. You can do whatever you want <laughs> and people will respect you. Like, just the stuff you created in the past already garners enough respect, but mm. yeah, best of the best right there. Ooh, that was a lot. <laughs> but I think we all learned, I learned a lot. I don't Definitely. know much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but moving on to, like, uh, the ways of how you keep up uh, your professional, like, side of the uh, of the career. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you stay engaged with your customers and also your growing fan base as well, too? Intent, wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> so... As, as of right now, my only quote-unquote professional side is Instagram, at Who Handmade Knives. <laughs> yeah. um, in terms of keeping, in, keeping on track with the fan base, quote-unquote fan base, um, because I have a professional account, like I can see insights and see how many people like and save posts and really just really looking into detail at that and seeing what kind of posts people like. Um, and creating more of those posts is, I think one of the best ways to do that. Um, I'm also not going to lie. Like I've been keeping track of other accounts too, like seeing if they grow and Mm -hmm. what they did that made them grow. And the algorithm has shifted a little bit and I'm not allowed to promote posts anymore with money because they think it's dangerous. And I'm like, bro, it's chef's knives. Everyone has like 10 of these. And then, (laughs) so I used to promote posts to reach more people, but now since I can't do that, I really have to look at the algorithm and people will save what they'll use in the future. And a lot of times that's like tutorials and like how you do things. Uh, any tutorial, any how-to, any like insight into how I do things, those will reach a lot more people. And I've come to also realize that people can tell when you put more time into like a post and generally those will also reach more people and more people will like them. That's how I keep in touch with the fan base. Um, so you said you're just on Instagram right now, but mm-hmm. do you see yourself expanding into other social media outlets? 
or are you just happy with Instagram at the moment? Um, and if you are, like, which which outlets are you eyeing right now? I've thought about this one a lot too. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is TikTok, but ah uh, yes. yes, I was gonna say, <laughs> like, are you gonna make a short yeah. video clip of you making nice with TikTok? That would be so interesting. Uh, the only thing is, um, out of the seven posts that I've posted on TikTok. Three of them were taken down for violence. Oh, interesting. Because of the knives, right? Yeah. Sharp blades. Yeah. And one of them was just me sharpening a knife and cutting paper. And I'm like, violence against paper. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty much. But it's. Probably TikTok has like a younger generation, like younger audience. Yeah. Yeah. And it just has like a higher threshold for viral videos. And like, I've, I've seen accounts that have blown up, like actually blown up. Almost a million followers. Each video gets like a couple hundred thousand views, maybe a couple million, even in the really viral cases. Um, and I honestly don't know how they got there without getting the dangerous like mm. community guideline thing. Um, Are they knife makers like you? Uh, they're blacksmiths, and they create yeah knives, axes, and hmm. yeah. I, I was just really confused about the community guideline thing, so I'm probably not gonna post much on TikTok because it's just honestly not worth it. But I do use it to edit some videos because it's really easy. I don't have to like use iMovie, which is it's, it's okay, but it's not great, and yeah. it's hard to put music. I would use Premiere Pro, but that also takes too much time. The second outlet that I thought of, like obviously YouTube, mm-hmm. like you can turn that into career by itself, and it sounds good and all, but it's just I think too much extra time at the moment. Um, it's on my list of things to do in the not so near future but uh yeah that's another outlet third and final one a website uh i've actually i started making one on squarespace but then i realized i hate squarespace (laughs) not sponsored (laughs) not sponsored by squarespace sponsored by audacity i'm just kidding we're not we're not (laughs) and yeah i'm probably going to use some adobe thing instead to start but it's one of those procrastination things where like just find a time to start, sit down, learn how to do it, and get it uploaded, and all the photos, pick the right ones, make it look snazzy, like, probably for beginning of summer, like, around that time, I'll start finally making a website. Um, I think that's it in terms of outlets. So, on top of doing, so, YouTube and uh, a website, what are some other goals that you want to uh, achieve and to get more coverage? So, in terms of future goals... I know I'm probably not going to turn this into a full-time job because I'm going to college and I'm probably going to use that degree to earn money rather than uh, selling (laughs) knives. Um, But I know at some point in the future, I want to try and earn that Journey Smith title. So right now, I'm really just working on getting my stuff more refined, absolutely cementing myself into like the niche of products that I'm making. Like I don't want to be the person that only makes custom knives, like what the customer wants. Like I also want to create stuff for myself Mm -hmm. and really see how good of stuff I can create. Um, uh, currently, I have, like, I'm not going to say the number, but I have a certain number of knives to finish, and after that, I really want to create an actually good, like, small katana. It's called a wakizashi. Mm-hmm. I, I think I pronounced it right, um, but I really want to create one of those and really bring it up to the highest level of fit and finish that I can and just test myself. Yeah, so currently just working on refining my craft. Sounds really plain, but I don't think I can think of another way to say it. Is there like any programs or like ways you can like go to Japan and study the bladesmiths over there? 
I think that would be really cool. That would be really cool. Yeah. I don't really know of any programs, but I know because I'm in college, I have the choice to study abroad. Mm -hmm. I really want to study abroad in Japan. There's just so much cool stuff there. Yeah. And maybe I'll stop by like a blacksmith shop. Maybe I'll buy a katana and use that as inspiration. Yeah. Would you be able to bring it back? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think like if I wanted to just buy a katana from Japan right now, I need to like get a license and stuff because mm. there's like this grade of katana that only is sold if you get a license because it's so good, so precious to Japan. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I've gotten an ax through a bag check before. So. Oh, Hopefully, hopefully. Not sponsored by uh, Homeland Security. <laughs> Not sponsored by Homeland Security. <laughs> Not sponsored by TSA. No, no. <laughs> Not at all. So you mentioned some other uh, uh, craftsmen um, while explaining through your uh, process. Um, who, are some, uh, who are some of your other inspirations or, I guess, Instagram accounts you follow in particular that you sort of draw inspiration from? And, you know, you, you look at it and you're like, oh, that's, that's really cool. I like that. So in terms of Instagram alone, uh, there's a lot of mastersmiths that have accounts, but since they're, uh, I don't want to say older, but not as technologically inclined, they just post like final product products and um, like short videos from time to time. And whatever they post is amazing. Like not gonna lie, it's some of the best material to learn from, but there's this guy called Alex Steele. I think a lot of people have heard of him. He's on YouTube. He was one of the people that really got me inspired. Just uh, posting videos of his builds and the entire process, including his failures, his wins, and just him figuring it out in the process. That was a really good place for me to learn things. Uh, that's uh, what I was referencing when I said watch a video 10 times because Right when I started, I wanted to get my hammer technique down. And one of the things to do to do that is actually make the same thing many times. His video on leaf keychains um, was one of the things that I got the most practice out of. I don't know how many times I've watched that video. Maybe I count for 1% of the views, maybe. Uh, but random YouTube tutorials also. Uh, even if they don't talk. Like, there's this uh, Russian YouTuber who makes videos of his builds. And he doesn't talk at all. But... There's still so much to learn in like the minutiae of his process and yeah. Awesome, thanks. All right, so right now, so we're, we're gonna go into our uh, a section called a rapid fire section. So right. just kinda, whatever the first thing comes to your mind, you just uh, just answer it, all right? Um, so what design was your favorite? Uh, classic American chef knife with a hamon. <laughs> uh, what's your dream project? So you mentioned the the Japanese short sword uh, earlier is uh, what are the other dream projects that you have? Dream project is a full-fledged katana built from scratch from Bloom Steel. And what are your other hobbies and interests? I am a runner. I am a cellist, but I haven't really touched the cello in a while because of quarantine and there's really nothing to practice for because I'm a really like competition-based person. Like, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Um, I like to play games like any other teenager. Uh, <laughs> recently got into FPS, Valorant. Hey, Ooh. I play that. Dope. Uh, of course, when the 1.17 Minecraft update drops, I'll be playing that for probably too many hours every week. But yeah, those are the <laughs> <laughs> yeah those are the big other hobbies. Dope. And we uh, on earlier we talked about uh, paper-based violence. 
So what are the <laughs> what is your other favorite thing to cut with your knives? Uh, <laughs> that's a good one. Um, paper towel rolls and uh, toilet paper rolls because oh they're really smooth. So you have to have a really sharp blade to like get through it, and you have mm. to be able to swing it quick enough without hitting something or somebody. Oh. <laughs> That's, that is, I've never hit somebody. <laughs> it's really important disclaimer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's the rules. Uh, you can either, I can either do a swing cut or a push cut where you don't swing at all and just rely on the sharpness to sort of fall through the tube. Uh, I think it looks really cool, and a lot of people on Instagram like to do it. Um, and then there's one more. Obviously, it's the tomato cut. It's nice. satisfying as heck. And <laughs> I, I guess a lot of people think that you need a sharp knife to cut through tomato. So, yeah. Right on. And final piece of advice for aspiring craftsmen. Best piece of advice that I can think of is like a lot of people say this to younger craftsmen. Like I see it on their Instagrams a lot, on YouTube a lot. It's one of those things that is 100% true, but some people don't like to hear. Uh, it's start cheap. I personally started off with like bricks, charcoal, and a hairdryer and a $60 anvil from Walmart of all places. Um, I know people that have started with even cheaper. Um, like they didn't even have an anvil. They just got a piece of railroad track or like a block of steel oh. from a local steel supplier or scrapyard. Um, starting cheap and learning the basics and seeing if you like the craft is so important. Like I've, I think this is a good time to mention like some tools can get really, really expensive. Like my grinder itself was $1,500. Whoa. And there's a bunch of other tools that are in the same ballpark of price. And if you just start and buy those tools and expect to have that passion, like not fade away or just like actually stay there. If, if that doesn't happen, you'll be wasting money and someone else will buy it from you for like 200 bucks. And I mean, good, good for that other person, but starting cheap better in every single way it's good advice absolutely agree that's like what i tell other photographers too like it's not the gear that makes you a good photographer but it's the skill yeah that makes mm -hmm. you a good photographer and the gear is just something that helps you achieve to be a better level so i totally can relate to that piece of advice dope awesome well Thank you, Jesse, for coming on to this episode of CNB Scene. We're really excited to see you uh, continue to hone your craft and uh, seeing you reach out with to more people and achieving all your goals. Um, He's thank you guys all for listening to this episode of CNB Scene Podcast. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye. All right, bye. See ya.